I'm Josh Young, and this is As Seen From Here. Today's podcast, Combating Angiogenesis, part one of an interview with Phil Rosenfeld on treating neovascular age-related macular degeneration. When um, Avacin or Bevacizumab was approved, we thought it might be worthwhile to try this drug in patients with neovascular AMD because many of our patients were continuing to lose vision. First this, the Accreditation Council for Continuing Medical Education requires a financial interest disclosure before any CME activity. Philip Rosenfeld declares consulting fees from Genentech, Protein Design Labs, Novartis, and iTech, and contracted research from Genentech, Novartis, iTech, and Alcon. He discusses off-label use of Avastin and Lucentis. I am a former stockholder of Pfizer. You can now get Category 1 CME credit for listening to As Seen From Here. Go to asseenfromhere.com and click on the link marked CME. For right now, you'll need to print the quizzes out and mail them in. We hope to have electronic versions of the quiz available by the end of this year. Big news for iTunes users. You can now get As Seen From Here through iTunes. Go to asseenfromhere.com and click on the iTunes Users link. Then click the subscribe button and you're done. Program number 20 of As Seen From Here was a discussion of the pathophysiology of angiogenesis. The focus of that podcast was on the manifold roles of VEGF and its subtypes. Today's program is the other side of that coin. It's about the treatment of angiogenesis. My guest, Philip Rosenfeld, has just published results of a study of the effect of systemic bevacizumab, a VEGF blocking agent, on neovascular age-related macular degeneration. Dr. Rosenfeld uses this paper as a jumping-off point to describe AMD therapy generally and anti-VEGF therapy in particular. The interview was lengthy but also edifying, so rather than paring it down, I've divided it into two separate podcasts. Today's program is part one of the interview with Dr. Rosenfeld. We'll hear part two next week. By way of background, can I have you describe what the current therapies are for CNV? Most of the treatments for cortical neovascularization, or CNV, focus on age-related macular degeneration, or neovascular age-related macular degeneration, though the same treatments can probably be applied to other diseases that have choroidal neovascularization, things like pathologic myopia and ocular histoplasmosis, and neovascular diseases secondary to inflammatory processes. So most of my comments are going to be dealing with age-related macular degeneration. Currently, the treatment options include photodynamic therapy, something called macugen therapy, or the generic term is picaptinib therapy, and a combination of these therapies. Usually, when we combine therapies at this time, we're combining photodynamic therapy with an intravitreal injection of steroid, in particular, Kenalog or Triamcinolone. Currently, those are the um, approved therapies or the standard therapies that are in clinical practice. There are other experimental therapies, and in particular, there's been a lot of attention given to a drug called Lucentis, or its generic term is Ranibizumab, its generic name. And that's a, a drug from a company called Genentech. I should, think I should be fair and say Macogen or Percaptinib is a drug that's manufactured by a company called iTech. 
And photodynamic therapy is really photodynamic therapy with vertiporphyrin or visidine. And that's a product of QLT and Novartis. Can I ask you, in general, what the results of these conventional therapies have been uh, for the treatment of neovascularization? The results right now depend upon the kind of lesion that we're treating. One of the treatments that I excluded was conventional thermal or hot laser treatment. And that's still used rarely for blood vessels that are growing in the macula but are away from the center of the vision, something that we call extrafoveal neovascularization. Everything that I'm going to be talking about from this point forward really has to do with blood vessels that are growing either under the center of the macula or subfoveal or blood vessels that are very close to the foveal center or juxtafoveal. Currently, photodynamic therapy, the visidine therapy, is FDA approved for the treatment of something that we call predominantly classic choroidal neovascularization. This is a form of wet macular degeneration that we categorize using fluorescein angiography as being classic neovascularization. I'm not going to go into the details of that. But basically, it's a very aggressive form of neovascular AMD. And photodynamic therapy was shown to be beneficial in slowing down the vision loss associated with this disease. It's pretty rare that anyone actually improves vision, though it has been known to happen, usually around 4 to 6% of the time. Just slowing down the vision losses is what we tell our patients to expect. Now, studies have also shown that photodynamic therapy may be beneficial for smaller lesions that are classified as minimally classic neovascularization and occult-only neovascularization. And these are angiographic terms, and they correlate somewhat to the aggressiveness of the lesion. But Medicare now in the United States is covering the cost of photodynamic therapy for these smaller, and when I say smaller, I mean lesions that are what we call four MPS disc areas or lesions that have an area roughly four times the optic nerve head, those lesions and smaller lesions. But once again, the treatment usually just slows down the vision loss associated with um, neovascular AMD. The other treatment, macogen therapy or percaptinib therapy, was recently approved by the Food and Drug Administration in the U.S. This was uh, approved back in December of 2004, became commercially available in late January of 2005, and it's approved for all neovascular forms of age-related macular degeneration. On average, patients still continue to lose vision on macogen therapy and visidine therapy. I should also say that visidine therapy is a therapy that uses an intravenous administration of a drug followed by a cold laser or just light activation of the drug in the back of the eye. Macogen therapy is a drug that's actually injected into the eye. Another difference between the two therapies is that visidine therapy or photodynamic therapy is given on average every three months where macogen therapy is recommended as an injection into the eye every six weeks. From a mechanistic standpoint, how does macogen and, in general, anti-VEGF therapy differ from visudine therapy? Visudine therapy is really an, an extension of thermal laser therapy, or what I call destructive therapies for the treatment of neovascularization. 
the strategy that was developed in the 1970s using conventional hot laser or thermal laser was that you can improve the outcomes by destroying the neovascularization directly. Now, that works when the neovascularization isn't near the center of the vision, but it really doesn't work well when the neovascularization is near the center of the vision because when you destroy the neovascularization, you also destroy the photoreceptors, the retina, that's actually allowing the patient to see. Photodynamic therapy was thought to be a gentler, kinder form of destructive therapy. A dye was infused intravenously. It was a photoactivatable dye. It was activated with a particular wavelength of light that wasn't deleterious to the retina. It destroyed the blood vessels from the inside, theoretically preserving retinal function. But we've since learned that probably there's collateral damage not only to the choroidal circulation, but to the retinal pigment epithelium and retina as well. And that probably accounts for why most patients continue to lose vision after receiving the treatment. There's also this phenomenon called severe vision decrease, where up to 4% of patients right after treatment with photodynamic therapy suffer a severe vision loss. And that's within the first week of therapy. And while most patients do improve somewhat, they never get back to the level of vision that they had before therapy. So that's a risk of therapy, and it's partly associated with the destructive nature of the therapy. The idea behind the other pharmacologic agents that I'm going to talk about, in particular macogen therapy and ranibizumab therapy and bevacizumab therapy and VEGF-trap therapy, these therapies are not destructive therapies. These agents are designed to bind up the factor that's believed to be responsible for causing the blood vessels to grow in the first place. And that factor in particular is something called vascular endothelial growth factor. What are the pharmacologic avenues that are open to us both clinically and in the, in the, in the lab now uh, for blocking VEGF? There's a great deal of evidence now to suggest that vascular endothelial growth factor, or VEGF, is responsible for the neovascularization in AMD. One way to block VEGF or inhibit VEGF is to prevent it from being produced in the first place. Another way to inhibit VEGF is once it's produced, somehow inhibit the protein itself. And another way to block VEGF action is to inhibit VEGF after it is already bound to its receptor on the endothelial cell and somehow interfere with its downstream signaling that allows the endothelial cell to grow and for the vessels to become more permeable. Now, all three strategies are currently being employed. Attempts are being made to block VEGF expression, the ability to produce the protein, by interfering with the messenger RNA inside the cell. And that's a strategy that's being employed by three different companies that are using small molecules called small interfering RNA molecules against vascular endothelial growth factor. Those studies are in the very earliest stages, what we call phase one clinical trials. And there's really no data to report right now. Most of our experience involves inhibiting VEGF after it's produced and secreted by cells, and it's in the extracellular space. And there are four agents that are designed to interfere with this extracellular VEGF. One is called macogen, which I already discussed, or picaptinib. It actually binds VEGF much like an 
antibody, but it's not a protein. It's not an antibody. It's an RNA molecule that is a unique class of molecules called aptamers. They, they fold in a particular way. This RNA molecule folds in a particular way so that it inhibits the protein like an antibody, but it's not an antibody. There are two other proteins that are antibodies or derivative of the antibodies that are being used. One is called ranibizumab or Lucentis, and another one is called Bevacizumab or Avastin. Now, Avastin is an antibody directed against VEGF that's produced by a company called Genentech. This antibody, or Avastin, as it's called commercially, is approved by the Food and Drug Administration for the treatment of metastatic colorectal cancer. It's given systemically, and it's a full-size antibody. It's actually a mouse monoclonal antibody that's been humanized against vascular endothelial growth factor. Genentech used that antibody to create another drug called Lucentis. What Genentech did was that they engineered a molecule that contained only the FAB portion or the antigen binding portion of the antibody. Then they, what's called affinity, matured that antibody fragment so that that fragment had 140-fold higher affinity for VEGF. So the full-length antibody measures 150,000 Daltons in size, and the Lucentis molecule is one-third that size at about 50,000 Daltons. So two proteins related to each other, both manufactured by Genentech, the full-length antibody is called Avastin. The antibody fragment is called Lucentis. And then the fourth molecule that's in early clinical trials is called the VEGF trap. It's been developed by a company called Regeneron, and it has what's called an FC portion like an antibody, but instead of the antigen binding arms, much like an antibody, they've actually taken the VEGF receptor, a modified VEGF receptor, and they They've attached that VEGF receptor to the FC portion of the antibody. That molecule, too, is being um, investigated for cancer therapy, and it's now being injected into the eyes of patients with age-related macular degeneration. So four different strategies, all designed to inhibit extracellular VEGF. And then there are several small molecules in development by different pharmaceutical companies that are designed to interfere with the protein kinase C activity or the tyrosine kinase activity of the cells that are binding VEGF. VEGF binds its receptor and turns on kinase activities inside the cell. And these small molecules are designed to interfere with these kinase activities and thus interfere with the downstream signaling of VEGF after it's already bound to its receptor. And these molecules, too, are in very early stage phase one clinical trials. Now, Phil, in terms of the four VEGF binding agents that you mentioned, two, two of them retain the FC portion of the antibody. One of them is, you know, as, as, as you mentioned, VEGF trap is not, um, not, a, not an antibody, but it, it, it does have that same FC portion, and two of them don't. What I want to ask you is why, from a metabolic standpoint or from a, from a signaling standpoint, what the advantage of that FC portion is, my understanding, and maybe um, I'm wrong with this, and if I am, certainly set, set me straight, um, is, is that for uh, medications 
given intravenously as opposed to intravitreally, that the retention of the FC portion gives a longer half-life to the, to the medication. Uh, that is correct. The full-length antibody has a half-life of approximately three weeks in the systemic circulation, while the antibody fragment, the FAB, has a very rapid turnover when it's given systemically. So for a treatment to be given intravenously or systemically, you would want a longer half-life, and the FC portion clearly allows the molecule to stick around in the systemic circulation longer. The disadvantage of an FC portion for a drug that's injected into the eye is that it creates a larger molecule. And since the molecule needs to penetrate the retina, theoretically, in order to act on the neovascularization under the retina when the drug is given intravitreally, the FC portion would provide you with unnecessary protein that may not necessarily contribute to the VEGF binding and may interfere with the penetration of that drug into the retina. And that's why Genentech developed that smaller FAB fragment. Theoretically, the FAB fragment should work better. Once more, in the context of the of the study that we're that we're going to be talking about now, the one that that you that you just published, the medication that was involved was bevacizumab, which does have the FC portion and was administered as part of this study intravenously. That is correct. When um, avacin or bevacizumab was approved, we thought it might be worthwhile to try this drug in patients with neovascular AMD, because many of our patients, as I mentioned previously, with current therapies, were continuing to lose vision. And if VEGF inhibition was important in being able to prevent blood vessels from growing and leaking, that perhaps systemic therapy with Avastin bevacizumab would actually be able to improve vision in our population. Phil, can I have you describe the design of the study? In the patient population that has cancer, Avastin is given every two weeks until the patient dies or there's evidence that the cancer is progressing. Since our patients didn't have cancer, they had age-related macular degeneration, we thought we'd be able to monitor our patients and determine when they needed treatment rather than just continually give treatment every two weeks. So we designed the experiment initially to give six infusions two weeks apart using the drug Avastin. Now, the two-week interval for dosing is the interval that's used in the cancer population, and the dose that we use, five milligrams per kilogram, is the dose that's used in the cancer population. This was an exploratory study, a proof of concept, and we were later planning to go back and look at lower doses to see if they were beneficial, if the higher dose worked. What we found was after a single infusion, we saw a dramatic response in the back of the eye. So the study was modified so that no patient got more than three infusions, then patients got two infusions, and then the study was further modified just so patients would get one infusion. In those patients that got two or three infusions, we studied 18 patients, and 12 of them went six months or longer without needing another treatment. And that's quite a bit different than the treatment every six weeks or three months with the currently approved therapies. Six of the 18 patients that we have followed now actually needed at least one treatment by month six. Some patients have actually gone a year without needing additional therapy. So the way the study was designed was to give treatment, stop, 
and follow the patients and only retreat them if they showed signs that the blood vessels were leaking or recurring and growing in size. One of the points that you make in the paper is in addition to, of course, looking at what the potential clinical benefit of the medication is, that you were looking at how well the medication was was tolerated. What are some of the systemic complications that you were monitoring, and and what did you see? We were very concerned about the systemic complications because in the cancer trials, one of the number one side effects that was observed was increased blood pressure or hypertension. This is a common side effect associated with anti-VEGF therapy, and it turns out that VEGF is a modulator of blood pressure. There are VEGF receptors on arterial smooth muscle cells, and Genentech was aware that if patients were infused with VEGF, it actually caused hypotension. And when VEGF was inhibited, it actually increased the risk of hypertension. And this is because VEGF, when bound to vascular smooth muscle cells, actually causes relaxation. And inhibition of all the circulating VEGF causes a rebound constriction of that vascular smooth muscle. So we were well aware of this and we were prepared. We had internal medicine specialists following our patients very closely. Of the 18 patients that started the trial, 10 were already on medication for their hypertension. And during the study, 10 of the 18 patients showed increased blood pressure that required medication. However, we only had a mild effect with an average increase in systolic blood pressure of about 10 millimeters of mercury, the same for the diastolic. And actually, by the end of six months, patients ended up with lower average blood pressure, approximately 120 over 70, compared to their starting blood pressure, which was approximately 130 over 80. So we had very good internists who were interested in managing blood pressure, and we didn't have any problems along those lines. Other potential risks that have been identified in the cancer population is an increased risk of thromboembolic events, such as heart attacks and strokes. Now, this was observed in a population that was getting the drug every two weeks for months and months, even a year or longer. And this is a population that's prone to thromboembolic events because of their metastatic disease. They're also getting chemotherapy, which damages endothelial cells. So we were concerned about this. We excluded any patient with a history of heart attack or stroke or on Coumadin or peripheral vascular disease. And fortunately, we had no complications. The only adverse event that we identified in our study was this mild elevation in blood pressure. I'm going to end the first part of the interview with Dr. Rosenfeld here. We'll pick up at this point next week. Philip J. Rosenfeld is Associate Professor of Ophthalmology at the Baskin Palmer Institute of the University of Miami Miller School of Medicine in Miami, Florida. His paper, Systemic Bevacizumab Therapy for Neovascular Age-Related Macular Degeneration, 12-Week Results of an Uncontrolled Open-Label Clinical Study, appears in the June 2005 issue of Ophthalmology. Ask questions of Dr. Rosenfeld or any of our previous guests, or make a comment about any of the topics we have discussed. These interviews are meant to be the start of a conversation in which you participate. Call our listener response lines. In the United States, dial area code 646-808-0231. In the United Kingdom, dial 20 
7558-8275 or Skype JYoungMD. Those numbers can be found on our website as seenfromhere.com. Be a part of the next podcast. I'm Josh Young.